Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called When God Was Green, the Original Eco-Covenant for the First Sunday in Lent, March the 5th, 2006. Beginning with Ash Wednesday, Christians around the world begin their observance of Lent. Since the 4th century, Christians have observed the 40 weekdays before Easter as a season of sorrow, reflection, repentance, fasting, abstinence, and acts of mercy. Perhaps you will see a friend this week with ashes conspicuously smeared in the middle of her forehead. Or maybe you have a colleague at work who's mentioned giving up chocolate or alcohol. In a culture that encourages indulgence, hubris, and bravado, Wednesday's ashes signify a wonderfully and outrageously countercultural act of humility. As a time when we befriend our brokenness, acknowledge that not all is well with our soul, and lament the pain of so many people in our world, Lent appeals to me as one of the most sensible and brutally realistic liturgical seasons of the year. The Old Testament reading this week about God's rainbow covenant with Noah seems at first glance to be an odd scripture for Lent. To complicate matters, the story of Noah's Ark has suffered tortured interpretations from divergent viewpoints as a primitive tale from a prehistoric people, a cute flannel graph for kids, an apologetic for archaeology, geology, and even meteorology or an unoriginal flood story similar to epics and other religious traditions, as if the Hebraic tradition has nothing unique to say. The story of Noah reminds me of the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who when asked whether the snake in the Garden of Eden really talked, responded, quote, the important point is not whether the snake spoke, but what he said, end quote. Noah informs us of God's interaction with human civilization in ways surprisingly appropriate for Lent. The first page of the Bible depicts a world created by God, then declared good seven times, but which thereafter devolved into violence and chaos, scapegoating by Adam, who blamed Eve and even God, fratricide by Cain, who murdered Abel, and Lamech's boast that he murdered someone for a slight insult, all of which culminated in the verdict that, quote, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, end quote. Genesis 6:11. After God judged the earth with a flood, he established a covenant or agreement with Noah. There is a phrase repeated five times here where God says, never again. God promised he would judge humanity like he had never again, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Genesis 8, verse 21. The scale and scope of the Noahic covenant is as comprehensive and universal as the strained efforts of the writer can describe it. God's covenant extended not only to Noah, his family, and his descendants, but to all life on earth, all living creatures of every kind, 
and even more remarkably to the earth itself. Genesis chapter 9, verses 13, 15, and 17. God's original eco-covenant extends throughout all time to all space. Contemplating the destruction of an entire civilization is disturbing, writes Rabbi Jane Rachel Littman, and so it should be. The Noahic flood story is not about bad things happening to good people, says Littman, but about bad things happening to bad people. You cannot play it both ways. You cannot hope for human justice to bring an abrupt end to the atrocities of a Hitler, Pol Pot, or Idi Amin who despoil the earth and wreak violence upon humanity. Nor can you complain about bureaucrats who haggle over the nuance of the word genocide while millions suffer in Darfur, even though we've promised never again. And then on the other hand, complain when God does exactly that. As if to save us from ourselves, God destroyed a civilization that was full of violence, not to annihilate it, but to redeem it. In his book, Collapse, from the last year, 2005, Jared Diamond reminds us that even some of our most advanced and venerable human civilizations don't last forever. The relationship between 12 environmental factors that he isolates and how humans interacted with them often determine whether societies collapsed or survived. Today, much of our world pursues a decidedly unsustainable environmental course due to poor human choices. Even worse, a disproportionate share of ecosystem degradation is borne by the very poor who are most impacted by it, those 40% of our fellow human beings who live in poverty, that is, 1.5 billion people or an additional one billion people who live in extreme poverty, defined as those who learn, earn less than a dollar a day. Without significant changes, planet Earth will exact a heavy price for our choices. At the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, in his book, The World is Flat, Thomas Friedman reminds us of the likely consequences of an additional three billion nouveau riche, mainly in India and China, who will soon have the economic wherewithal to consume limited resources in the same gluttonous manner that we Westerners now do. Beijing alone, to take but one example, now adds a thousand new cars every day to its streets. This indefinite existence of civilization as we know it is by no means guaranteed. Theology as well as science and environmental expertise, ought to inform our motives and our choices. A prayer of repentance from the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer encourages us to confess, quote, our waste and pollution of God's creation and our lack of concern for those who come after us, end quote. That's a decidedly Lenten prayer rooted in the story of Noah. If God created the world and called it good, judged it to save it from the ways we violently despoiled it, then made a covenant not only with Noah's families, his descendants, every living creature, all life, and with the very earth itself, 
then there's no better season than Lent to reaffirm our commitment to creation care. Even some evangelicals have taken positive steps in this regard. Eighty-six of their leaders recently signed an urgent call to action in their, quote, evangelical climate initiative, end quote. The first sentence of the Bible invests the earth with inherent and even sacred value in and of itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He then charged human beings to manage creation as his stewards. That affirmation alone should cause Christians to care deeply about crises of environment and ecosystems. God's covenant with Noah, verified with the sign of a rainbow, underscores our responsibility. Simple, enlightened self-interest also reminds us that all life remains fundamentally dependent upon and an integral part of the ecosystem. Our fate is bound up with the fate of the planet. You might not know about biomes, mean trophic levels, or eutrophication. I didn't when I read Ecosystems and Human Well-Being, a synthesis, a report of the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. But you don't need to in order to join God in his original eco-covenant to care for all of life, every creature, and for the very earth itself. And now for further reflection. What connections might Christians make between Lenten and environmental themes? How have you taken seriously the scientific and theological mandates to care for creation? Third, what practical steps might you take to care for creation? Fourth, consider a bumper sticker I saw recently. Think globally, bite lo locally. And finally, for further reflections, see the two books mentioned already by Jared Diamond, Collapse, and Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat, along with an important work called Ecosystems and Human Well-Being, a Synthesis, a Report of the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, Washington, D.C., World Resources Institute, 2005. My book review this week is of a book by Stanley Hauerwas, Cross-Shattered Christ, Meditations on the Seven Last Words, Grand Rapids, Brazos, 2004, 108 pages. Here's a little book by one of our best theologians that makes for ideal reading at Lent. You could read it with great profit for personal meditations or in a church Sunday school class. After a brief introduction, Hauerwas devotes one chapter each to the seven last words of Christ. Number one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Two, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Three, woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. Four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Five, I thirst. Six, it is finished. Seven, 
Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Each chapter is quite short, at six to eight pages long, and is accompanied by woodblock printings by Rick Beerhorse. Hauerwas takes the title for his book from a poem called Mercy in Manhandling the Deity by John F. Dean, part of which reads as follows. Unholy we sang this morning and prayed as if we were not broken. Crooked the Christ figure hung, splayed on bloody beams above us. Devious God, dweller in shadows, mercy on us. Immortal cross-shattered Christ, your gentle grace down upon us. The Paschal mystery, says Hauerwas, is not an insoluble puzzle, but instead a reality that we can love and embrace, even while it subverts all we think we know. We do not possess this truth in a self-serving manner, contrary to the ways we often think and act, but ought to beg God to be transformed by the truth of Good Friday. Repenting of our many presumptions, as we approach the foot of the cross, we realize that our lives can never return to normal. Stanley Hauerwas, Cross-Shattered Christ. For film this week, I review the film called Tarnation from the year 2003. We're all just one happy family insists Grandfather Adolf, and we all love God. How and why that tragic falsehood got perpetuated in his horribly dysfunctional family is the subject of Jonathan Coet's intense, emotionally raw, and deeply sad autobiographical documentary. His mother, Renee, for all her madness, mental illness, 200 shock therapy treatments as a child, drug abuse, rape, and over a hundred psychiatric hospitalizations from 1965 to 1999 knows better than her father Adolf. Screwed up parents raise screwed up kids. I just wanted to break that cycle. But she did not and could not, and her son Jonathan, the filmmaker, writer, and director, paid a horrible psychic price. I don't want to be like my mom, he frets in a final scene. But he repeated the past and more, including growing up gay in Texas and developing what doctors called a depersonalization disorder, in which one views one's life in a detached third-person manner as if in a dream. Coet incorporates numerous media into his cinematic catharsis, Super 8 home movies that he started taking when he was 11, still photos, phone messages, movie clips, tape recordings, and even simple texts. He fires these at the viewer in a non-linear fashion and at a staccato pace, often filling split screens with dozens of overlapping frames. The disorienting effect mimics his own real life and even draws the viewer into his own state of mind. Coet is a gifted filmmaker. As a human being, he gets high marks for sheer bravery for confronting his horrific past and for his deep tenderness towards his deranged mother who came to live with him in New York City. No person should bear even a fraction of the curse that he inherited. 
His film, Tarnation, makes at least two claims to fame. First, it's won a place as one of the top ten films of the year on over 50 such lists. And secondly, was reputedly made for $218 on a Macintosh and edited with the bundled iMovie software that came with the computer. Tarnation, from the year 2003. For poetry this week, we offer a poem called The Emperor Constantine by Cesla Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004 and won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1918. I could have lived in the time of Constantine, 300 years after the death of the Savior, of whom no more was known than that he had risen like a sunny Mithra among Roman legionnaires. I would have witnessed the quarrel between homoousios and homoousios about whether the Christ nature is divine or only resembles divinity. Probably I would have cast my vote against Trinitarians, for who, who ever could have guessed the Creator's nature? Constantine emperor of the world, coxcomb and murderer, tipped the scale at the Council of Nicaea, so that we, generation after generation, meditate on the Holy Trinity, mystery of mysteries, without which the blood of man would have been alien to the blood of the universe, and the spilling of his own blood by a suffering God who offered himself as a sacrifice even as he was creating the world, would have been in vain. Thus, Constantine was merely an undeserving tool, unaware of what he was doing for people of distant times. In us, do we know what we are destined for? The Emperor Constantine by Czeslaw Milos And finally for this week, March the 5th, we offer our monthly music review by David Werther of the University of Wisconsin. This week, David reviews Bob Dylan, Live at the Gaslight, 1962, produced by Columbia 2005, Sunny BMG Music Entertainment. In 1961, Columbia Records' John Hammond who had discovered Billie Holiday, trusted his instincts yet again, and offered a recording contract to an unknown young artist who had been rejected by Elektra, Vanguard, and Folkways. Bob Dylan thus signed with Columbia, but when his first record went nowhere, he was subsequently dubbed as Hammond's Folly. The music on Live at the Gaslight, 1962, was recorded between the release of Dylan's first and second albums. Of the ten songs, three are Dylan originals, John Brown, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and Don't Think Twice, It's Alright. John Brown relates the shock and horror every soldier must know when he meets his enemy. Oh, and I thought when I was there, God, what am I doing here? I'm a trying to kill somebody or die trying. But the thing that scared me most was my enemy came close, and I saw that his face looked just like mine. Oh, Lord, just like mine. 
While hard rains are going to fall, is an apocalyptic nightmare that makes John Brown sound tame. It conjures images that are as old as humanity and as recent as today's CNN report. Quote, I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping. I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. Heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world. Heard one person starve. I heard many people laughing. I met a young child beside a dead pony. I met a young woman whose body was burning. If Dylan had written nothing else, he would be recognized for this composition. It has a prophetic power that transcends the folk tradition. Among Dylan's other selections are Barbara Allen, a song said to be one of George Washington's favorites, and Cuckoo Bird, which Dylan knew from a collection of recordings entitled The Anthology of American Folk Music. This anthology was, and continues to be, an important reference point for Dylan. Howard soon notes that Dylan's highly acclaimed 1997 CD, Time Out of Mind, is flecked with phrases from the anthology. Most striking about the traditional material is the air of authenticity that Dylan brings to it. These songs sound like Dylan has lived in them, and yet the voice singing about unrequited love, drugs, and drink is the voice of an artist barely out of his teen years. If a mark of a master is the ability to quickly immerse himself in a style and make a lasting contribution to that style, these songs are indeed the work of a master. Thanks go to Columbia for releasing these recordings and to John Hammond for recognizing Dylan's gift. Bob Dylan, Live at the Gaslight, 1962. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 5th, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.